The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. You get uh, the late developments in Washington by returning to Washington and David Brinkley. Well, this one is not from Washington, Frank, but the Dallas police reported a moment ago that a foreign-made rifle believed to have been used in the shooting of the president had no fingerprints on it. It has been sent here to the FBI laboratory in Washington for an analysis. Dallas Prime Laboratory, Lieutenant J.C. Day, went to the building a short time after the uh, shooting took place, and he walked out with a British 303 rifle. The rifle has a telescopic sight. Now, the rifle was found on the sixth floor of the building near a corner window. Also, police searching that area found three empty 303 cartridge cases, also scraps of chicken, as if a person could have been there for some time. There were boxes of books, textbooks, and... Welcome, citizens of the world. This is episode number 82 of the Lone Gummin Podcast, and this is your boy Rob Clark with you here today. A couple things. I would like to first apologize for the delay in putting out this program. Uh, some things went down, some things happened, some things got taken care of. Uh, but it's late, but it's here. Okay, and I would also like to apologize for my nasally sound. Uh, my head is currently full of snot. Uh, it's been raining here for like four days straight, a little chilly, seasons changing kind of thing. So I apologize for my nasally sound. Hopefully by next week it will be better. <clears throat> now, a couple of things. This show is going to be about who can you trust? When it comes to the Kennedy assassination, what can you trust when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, when it comes to stories? It's story time, children. Um, now, we've talked about a couple of these storytellers on previous episodes, uh, debunking stories. But the stories we're going to be talking about today can't really be debunked. They're just odd they're just out there they're just intriguing they're just food for thought you know they're not really proof of anything but uh they're interesting nonetheless now the first one we're going to talk about today is the don norton story now you might say don norton who the hell is don norton well i'm going to tell you and this is from something that John Judge wrote back in the year 2000. It is up on uh, Bill Kelly's wonderful blog, JFK Counter Coup 2.blogspot.com, uh, which I'll put a link up to over on tlgpodcast.com, where you can go read this great article <clears> that was written by John Judge and put out by Bill Kelly in 2012. So it starts off kind of like this. Bill Kelly requested that I relate the meeting I had with a man using the name Don Norton 
at the University of Dayton in Ohio in the 70s. I had helped to make arrangements for researcher May Brussel to speak on campus. Bill Kelly was also going to school there at the time and, and attended her talk. After the crowd broke and headed home, uh, he, uh, I headed home with May and two roommates at our off-campus housing. Coming out of the student union, I noticed a man hanging back, but following us down the hallway and into the elevator. May was surrounded by a small group of people, including Bill Kelly, who were asking her questions. The man held back while she stopped outside in the dark to finish talking to them. Then May, myself, and my roommates began to head toward home and stepped into the light of the street lamps at the edge of campus. Now at this point, the man came out of the shadows from behind us and came up to May saying, May, don't you know who I am? May turned and looked at him for a moment and said, Hmm, you look like Lee Harvey Oswald. And to my amazement, he did. Add 10 years to his life, uh, some receding hairline, but the resemblance was clearly there. He looked at his feet and said, a lot of people tell me that. My name is Don Norton. At this point, May became effusive. Oh, Don, I'm so glad you came. John, this is Don Norton. He wrote to me to say he was going to drive down from Columbus to hear the talk. He's the only researcher in the country who sends me money to do my work. Again, the man looked at his feet and said, it's my conscience money. I was still flabbergasted at his resemblance to Oswald and intrigued about who he was, so I invited him to come down to the house and visit with May and have a cup of coffee. He followed us there. Inside, in the light, the resemblance was even clearer to me. He looked like the round, cherubic-faced Oswald who was in the Soviet Union photos and on the passport photo, but not like the Oswald killed in Dallas. I expected him to ask questions of May. But instead, he began a long recitation about Marxism and communist ideology. Finally, May got up from knitting and said, I think I'm going to go to bed now. I offered to send my research writings to the man, and he told me to write him at General Delivery, Columbus, Ohio. He bid us good night and left. The next day, on, on the way to visit a correspondent in a state prison in Ohio, May turned to me in the car and said, Don't you think that that was Oswald who visited us last night? And I said, well, it sure looked like Oswald May, but Oswald is dead. Not according to his mother, May responded. She told me that the man shot in the basement of the Dallas jail was not her son. I was astounded. Didn't you notice what he was doing last night? I said, well, I thought it strange that he didn't ask any questions or really talk to us. He was reciting verbatim the speech Oswald gave on the radio in New Orleans about communism and Marxism. I had never heard the text of the speech, so it had not rung a bell for me. May said, I'm going to go home and check his signature on his letters to me. I have a whole collection of Oswald's signatures, and they're not all the same person, May said. She was clearly excited that she had met a living Oswald. Now, that's, uh, that's a crazy great story. Um, now, fast forward years later, uh, researcher Jack White and others took a special interest in the story. It followed down leads of a Don Norton in Columbus. But the early photo that they showed me of that man did not resemble the person that I saw. Later, I saw a photo of a man that lived in Florida and used the name Don Norton, and it was clearly the same person we had seen. I'm convinced that the man I met that night was either the Oswald who lived with Marina in the Soviet Union or a dead ringer for him. I do not know if his real name was Don Norton, of course. That is just the name he gave us. Uh, D.A. Jim Garrison believed that someone using that name was involved in the Kennedy assassination conspiracy. Um, now later, John Judge, he was a custodian of May Brussels whole entire library and her files for a little while. And Judge says that he never did find any letters from, from Don Norton in her collection. So, now, I just mentioned a little bit ago that there was a, another Donald Norton asserted by Jim Garrison to be involved in some kind of a conspiracy. But this guy is Donald P. Norton. And his story is like this. He was a, a CIA asset, he said. He'd be being paid like 500 a month to do witch hunting back in the late 50s. And what witch hunting was back then was uh, outing homosexuals and communists. Um, and he speaks about several things that he that he did in uh, 
He says in early 58, for example, he received a phone call from his contact who asked him if he would like to take a trip to Cuba. He met a Hugh Ferris at the Eastern Airline ticket counter at the Atlanta airport. Ferris gave him a case of phonograph records saying it's in the jackets, samples of which he was to take to Carlo Media, a Cuban television personality working for the CIA at the time. Ferris was described as a man who wore sunglasses and a very sloppy wig, who Norton is convinced was David Ferry. Um, a young lady was with him, Carlotta Roth, a dancer at the Domino Lounge in Atlanta. After traveling to Cuba, Norton returned to Georgia via Miami and New York and reported to his CIA contact in Atlanta. Now he goes on to speak of other uh, encounters. He says, in 1960, he was on a trip to New Orleans and Norton said he went to the My Oh My Club, a homosexual hangout where he saw Hugh Ferris, also known as David Ferry, though he didn't break operational security and talk to him. Um, so it goes on and on and on. Now the reason Garrison was interested in this guy is because supposedly in September of 62, Norton said he was given the assignment of delivering $50,000 to the Hotel Yamayel in Monterey, Mexico. Now, according to the uh, New Orleans District Attorney's Investigators Report, it should be noted here that Norton's knowledge of Cuban policy of this country is extremely vague. He is able to theorize as if it were some revelation that the United States or CIA was behind the overthrow of Batista, but when Castro threw out the CIA, it in turn and the U.S. government turned against Castro. He does, however, say that Carlo Media, the CIA-employed Cuban, is now in a Castro prison or so he thinks. He says that after the Castro overthrow, his only assignment involving Cuba was this courier trip to Monterey to turn over $50,000 to a Harvey Lee. Now, after registering at the, at the Yamayel Motel, Norton said he was met by Harvey Lee before he could even get to his room. They went to the bar and had a few beers, and Norton described Harvey Lee as a man of slight build who dressed casually who appeared identical to Oswald except for the fact that his hair was not as thin as the hair of the man he saw in pictures that identified as Lee Harvey Oswald. Norton also noted that Harvey Lee refused to look him in the eye. When asked where he was from, Norton recalled the answer he thinks was New Orleans. Now, in return for the case of money, uh, Norton was given a case of documents in manila envelopes from uh, this Harvey Lee, the nature of which he does not know. Now, from Monterey, Norton City then drove to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where he became a television personality and played at the bar of the Georgian Terrace Restaurant. There, he was met by a man he can only describe as resembling Oral Roberts, the evangelist, and saying this man came to him and used a code identification, which was, the weather is very warm in Tulsa. And Norton turned over the documents that Harvey Lee had given to him uh, in the parking lot where the man was driving a Volkswagen. So... What what does all this mean? I don't. I have no idea. Uh, but it's just another, you know, aspect of the case. Now, this is not the only time where Donald Norton comes up. There's also a Donald O. Norton, also from Ohio, uh, and also a Donald J. Norton, author of Larry, a biography of Larry Bell founder of Bell Aerospace and patron of Arthur Young, designer of the Bell Helicopter, which would go on to make billions in the Vietnam War. So there's that. So what can we make of all this? Can we trust their story? I mean, it's very interesting and, and, uh, to think about, you know, that this could have been an Oswald double. Um, also very interesting to think that Marguerite Oswald doesn't believe that that was her son that was killed uh, in the basement of uh, the Dallas Police Department that day. Very interesting stuff. Very interesting. Now, the... Uh, and I have seen some of the uh, signature comparisons of Donald Norton. And I'll put those I'll put those up on the website too over at TLGpodcast.com for you to take a look at, it and you can judge for yourself if it appears to be the same as, as some of the other ones uh, known known autographs of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now the next 
the next little story we're going to be talking about here today is the stories of, uh, and they're kind of intertwined, so we'll kind of talk about them together. Victor Marchetti and Ron Lewis. Now, Victor Marchetti was the executive assistant to the deputy director of the CIA under Richard Helms at the time of the assassination. And in 1967, according to Marchetti, uh, Richard Helms told other CIA agents that Clay Shaw and Ferry should be protected against the investigation of New Orleans DA Jim Garrison. Um, now, Marchetti also goes a, l a little further in, in the clip that you're going to be hearing about here in a second when it comes to exactly who Oswald was and what he was doing. Now, Ron Lewis, who you'll also hear in a second in the same clip, uh, not to be confused with David or Anna Lewis, uh, who were also associated through Bannister's office in New Orleans at the time, supposedly. Uh, this guy is Ron Lewis. Now, Ron Lewis is, a, is, is an interesting character because his book, Flashback, was written in the late 80s and put out. And this is before all the hype of the of the JFK movie and uh, the Records Act and, and all that, where all his books came out in 92, 93, 94, uh, when interest was at its most peak, you know, where people were trying to make money uh, off the assassination, off the movie and the hype surrounding it. And he kind of came and went pretty quick. You know, he didn't hang around. He didn't, he didn't go on multiple outlets and try to sell his book. Uh, and you'll hear it straight from Oliver Stone's mouth that Marina acknowledges that she did run into Ron Lewis in New Orleans uh, when she followed Lee to work one day. So you'll hear that and you'll hear what they have to say. And then uh, we'll talk about it in just a second. And here is the clip. What if Lee Harvey Oswald was really a U.S. intelligence agent? Joining us now is Victor Marchetti, former executive assistant to the... Deputy Director of the CIA under Richard Helms. Mr. Marchetti was at the CIA when Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, Mr. Marchetti, you, we know that Oswald lived in Russia. Was he a defector? It's possible, but more likely he was a, uh, uh, what we call a dangle. <clears throat> he was an American uh, intelligence agent who was put out there for the Soviets to recruit in the hope that he could penetrate their, uh, their intelligence service. Did Oswald ever work for the CIA? Not to my knowledge, and uh, although the CIA might have been aware of his operations, uh, the FBI would have been aware of the operations also, uh, particularly when he came back to this country. Well, did Oswald work for the FBI? No, I don't believe he did. I think he was uh, uh, working with naval intelligence, but the FBI was coordinating on the operation as was uh, the CIA in the, in the Soviet Union, of course, when he was there earlier. Please explain what the Office of Naval Intelligence is. Now, the Office of Naval Intelligence is, a, is the Navy's uh, CIA, and that is uh, probably the outfit that uh, uh, Oswald was working for. Thank you. Um, Oswald is a very mysterious person. To find out more about him, we have asked Ron Lewis, a friend of Oswald's, to join us. Oliver Stone, the director of the JFK movie, told us about Ron in his book, Flashback, The Untold Story of Lee Harvey Oswald. Marina Oswald confirmed to me that Lois did exist, and she remembered him, because he bumped into her one day in New Orleans when she followed uh, Lee to work. Mr. Lewis, I understand that you work with Oswald in New Orleans. We both work for Guy Bannister, but... He didn't pay us. Uh, we got paid from another source. Who was Guy Bannister? He was uh, the head of uh, the Chicago office of the FBI. And uh, he also um, supplied guns for the Cuban refugees. And Lee told me this was a CIA operation. What did Oswald do for Guy Bannister? He went on to college campuses and he um, gathered information for the FBI. And uh, he also recruited people to work for Guy Bannister. Did Oswald ever handle gun shipments at uh, 544 Camp Street? 
he brought in a shipment of ammunition and part of those were kept at 544 Camp Street. Part was taken in a laundry truck to Lake Pontchartrain. I remember this because um, the uh, boxes were very heavy and Lee was uh, not a muscular person and he sometimes said he was going to quit because of it. Is it true that Oswald had worked with Jack Ruby in New Orleans? He told me that Jack Ruby drove the laundry truck. The Warren Commission said that Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby never knew each other. Are you saying that they did know each other? They knew each other very well. That makes us wonder how much else in the Warren Commission report regarding Oswald is incorrect. So what can we take from the stories of uh, Ron Lewis and Victor Marchetti? Well, interesting. You know, we have to keep in mind that, that Marchetti was a uh, CIA. So, and like others in the CIA, like E. Howard Hunt, Frank Sturgis, uh, you name it, guys like this, how much of their stories can we really trust to be true? Now, Marchetti's an interesting character. He was he came out very early um, with questions and accusations uh, concerning the assassination and the CIA's odd behavior concerning it. You know, he didn't say Oswald was a CIA agent. He didn't say he was an FBI agent. He pondered that he could possibly have been ONI and that he was being used as a dangle for possible Russian intelligence to try to compromise, which is an interesting theory and one that is, is shared by a lot of people in the, in the, in the research community. Uh, now, Ron Lewis, you know, his story is interesting. You know, he's got, he wrote a book called Flashback, which is very interesting. I talked about it before on the show. I forget what episode it was, but I'll put a link up to where you can get his book on Amazon or over on TLGpodcast.com. I would encourage everybody to go read it. You know, it's an interesting book. A li- you know, a little bit of it is, uh, I guess, you know, he tells about the summer of 63 and how he was Oswald's friend. And they hung out sometimes and that Oswald had a little small like closet type office in Adrian Alba's garage next door to Rattley Coffee Company where he would spend a good bit of his time. And he kept some stuff there, some flyers there, and he also kept his pistol there in the air conditioner housing. Um, number, apparently Marina followed Lee to work one day just to uh, see where he was going. I guess he, she was suspicious of what he was doing. And Ron Lewis said that he was leaving Alva's garage and damn near ran Marina over, who was pushing a stroller at the time. And uh, Marina later told uh, Oliver Stone in an interview that she did remember that incident. So, and, and uh, you know, Ron Lewis tells a lot of things that, were, that they were doing for Guy Bannister down there. He tells about the Clinton, Louisiana operation. And what they were really trying to do over there was kind of like an anti-integration operation. And uh, he also says that that Oswald almost, or he thinks Oswald almost tried to shoot, I think, one of the longs that was running for governor at the time. But it didn't actually go through with it. So how much of his story can we believe? Can we trust him? I don't know. You know, it's just... It's one of these guys that, that you can't debunk because everybody's already dead. You know, Banisher's dead. Uh, Ferry's dead. Jack Martin's dead. All these guys are dead. So uh, very interesting, though, nonetheless. Um, and I would encourage everybody out there to just to give his book a try and check it out and uh, see what you think for yourself. Now, some other quickies we're going to talk about here is... Uh, Coming, this one comes from Bill Cheshire, who was supposed to have information linking Oswald and Ruby together. And Cheshire died of a sudden heart attack in March of 64. Uh, when shown a newspaper article shortly after the assassination, uh, where Ruby claimed that he didn't know Oswald, Rose Sheremy, who had been an employee at the carousel, laughed and said they were bedmates. Now, Miss Sheremy was killed by a hit-and-run driver on October 4, 1965, in Big Sandy, Texas. Clyde Johnson asserted a relationship between Ruby Oswald Ferry and Clay Shaw, presumably a homosexual quadrangle, 
Uh, Johnson was beat the day before his scheduled appearance at the Shaw trial and murdered with a shotgun shortly thereafter. A possible Ruby Oswald connection was contained in the Warren Report, a border at the same house as Oswald, uh, owned by Erlene Roberts, which that's not right. Uh, it was owned by Gladys Johnson. Uh, was John Carter, who was friends with Wanda Killiam, who had known Ruby since 1947. Carter worked with Hank Killiam, Wanda's husband, as a house painter. All three were possible sources of showing a Ruby Oswald connection. Killian was found dead with his throat cut and his body thrown through a department store window in Pensacola, Florida on March 17, 1964. Another possibility is that Ruby knew or was aware of Oswald through Roscoe and Geneva White. Roscoe uh, White was a Dallas police officer and an acquaintance of Ruby who had visited in Ruby's office where Geneva, a B-girl at the Carousel Club, overheard plans regarding the assassination, supposedly. Roscoe and Geneva White and Oswald went to a rifle range where Oswald was reported to be a poor shot. Former Texas Attorney General Jim Maddox was told by his mother that she saw Ruby and Oswald have dinner together at the restaurant where she was a waitress. Um, and this is a, interesting. Four Dallas deputies, Billy Preston, Roby Love, uh, Mike Callahan, and Ben Cash, the later three are referred to as constables, examined a box full of handwritten notes that linked Ruby and Oswald. The box and contents were handed over to District Attorney Henry Wade in late 63 or early 64. Wade claimed he couldn't remember receiving such papers. Among the papers were a photocopy of a daily worker press card issued to Ruby, a motel receipt from a hotel in uh, New Orleans dated several weeks prior to the assassination with both Ruby's and Oswald's name on it, and a handwritten note about a plan to assassinate Kennedy in Wisconsin. Several other papers were in the box as well. Uh, let's see, a stripper at the Midnight Lounge in Dallas, Pixie Lynn, reported, reportedly stated to Travis Bickendorfer, a bartender there that Ruby and Oswald were present at a recent party in Dallas. When interviewed at her lawyer's office by the Secret Service, she denied all details, including having worked on November 22nd. The interview was at the request of the Secret Service, who asked for an affidavit with her denial. This request upset her considerably, and she requested that the affidavit typed by a Secret Service stenographer be done at her lawyer's office. This case remains open for discussion with the United States Attorney as to the prosecution of Birkendorfer, uh, interview with Birkendorfer if warranted. It is hard not to suspect the heavy hand of government to try to scuttle all allegations of a Ruby Oswald connection. Uh, so, yeah, you know, a lot of these are just, you know, not substantiatable, I guess you could say. Um, just stories, you know, just stories. That's all they are. Some of them, just stories. And here's another one. Uh, other documents released by the ARRB discuss a Johnson semi-automatic .30-06 rifle that was apparently found in Dealey Plaza soon after the shooting. And I've been talking about this on recent shows. This is Jerry Patrick Hemming's rifle. The documents strongly link this rifle to two men who have long been suspected of being involved in the assassination plot, Lauren Hall and Jerry Patrick Hemming, founders of Interpen which trained anti-Castro guerrillas with CIA and mob funding. This rifle was used in anti-Castro raids in Cuba. Lauren Hall and an unidentified Hispanic man took the weapon about a week before the assassination from California to Dallas. Hall's associate, Jerry Hemming, is known to have been in Dallas on the day of the shooting, and Hall himself told Hathcock, the, the uh, California owner of the rifle, Five days prior to the assassination that he had to catch a flight to Dallas. This is from HSCA 180-10107-1044. Now, interestingly enough, in 1975, a maintenance man named Morgan, while working on the roof of the county records building in Dealey Plaza, found a 30-06 shell casing lying under the lip of roofing tar at the base of the roof's parapet on the side facing the plaza, according to his son, Dean Morgan, the shell casing is dated at least from 1953. 
One side of the casing has been pitted by exposure to the weather, suggesting that it was on the roof for some time. The casing, which is still in Morgan's possession, has an odd crimp around his neck, which could lead one to believe that the shell itself was possibly used as some kind of a sabot or was loaded with a man liquor carcano bullet, a 6.5 millimeter bullet and kind of crimped it together to be able to be shot over a 30-06. Odd. But again, it's just more, uh, you know, relating to this rifle, Lauren Hall, Jerry Hemming. Now, Jerry Hemming has denied being in Dallas on November 22, 1963. And in other places, he's uh, admitted to being in Dallas on 19, in, in uh, November 22, 1963. And this is a guy that's told so many stories, I don't think he can even keep himself straight. But... We have two two police reports from witnesses identifying a six foot seven man being seen walking down the street with a rifle on his back. Uh, there's not too many six, six six you know six foot seven guys walking around Dallas on November twenty second with a rifle on their back that couldn't be named Jerry Hemming. So there's that because um, he's put he's often put out there that, that this whole Lauren Hall rifle story was possibly. Uh, to be used to set Lauren Hall up as a patsy, but that doesn't quite make sense. Um, being as it was Hemming's rifle and all, it, it would have made Hemming more of a patsy than, than Lauren Hall, even though Lauren Hall picked up the gun. But apparently, these guys either left no fingerprints on this rifle, uh, but did leave somehow Roy Payne's on there. I mean, I guess they wore gloves. You know, it didn't clean the rifle. But it's one of those other things that, you know, you just can't account for. <laughs> so, now the next story I want to talk to you all about today is about Robert Vinson. Now, Robert Vinson has a very interesting story. Robert Vinson joined the Army in 1946 he, he got out of the Army in 1948 and joined the Air Force, where he stayed for, for 20 years. Uh, and while in the Air Force, he was stationed at NORAD uh, Strategic Air Command in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he was there at the time of the assassination, stationed there. Now, the way the story goes is that Robert Vinson had been passed over for some kind of a promotion, and he was highly upset about it. So he proceeded to make his way, I think on Tuesday before the assassination or Wednesday to Washington DC to run his concerns by Pentagon staff, you know, high ups to which he did. And he was leaving DC from Andrews air force base at about eight 30 that morning. Now he tried to get, you know, he just showed up there and tried to get a ride back to Colorado to which he was told there was no civilian, you know, or, uh, civilian aircraft or military personnel aircraft going that way that day but they did in fact have a cargo plane if he didn't mind riding in a cargo plane uh, much less comfortable than a passenger plane and he wanted to get back so he said yeah okay that's fine you know so the plane taxied and ran and uh, lifted off at about 8.30 that morning from Andrews Air Force Base so they're flying and uh at about 1230, he said, you know, the pilot kind of came across the speaker and said that the president had been shot. And to which the, the, the plane proceeded to make a hard left turn. Which if you're heading from east to west and you make a left and you're going south. So the next thing he knows, they're landing somewhere to the south by a river. And I'm going to let Robert Vinson tell you the rest of the story in his own words. We'll talk about it when I come back. So enjoy Robert Vinson. And the C-54. It was south of Dallas along the uh, Trinity River. We were on the south side of the Trinity River when we landed because there was trees and water back to the north of us. All right, go ahead and, and, and tell us uh, what happened after that. And then there was two gentlemen got on the airplane. Um, one of them was uh, 
oh, about six foot, six foot two, weighed about, I imagine, 200 or around 190, 200 pounds. Uh, he was wearing uh, white, well, it was a beige-like coveralls. And uh, there was another gentleman, him, he was much shorter, and he had uh, black hair, kind of skinny, and I guess he would weigh approximately uh, maybe 150, 155 pounds. All right, were these Caucasians? Uh, one of them uh, looked like he was a Latin, maybe Cuban, and the other one was Caucasian. All right. And were they both, these, these last two men you're describing, dressed in these beige coveralls? Yes. Any insignias or labels or anything uh, on their coveralls? Nothing other than a belt. The Jeep uh, uh, was a yellow type. Looked like a road Jeep. Uh, they used on roads, you know, repairing them. Yellow. It and was kind of yellowish color. So this vehicle was sitting there on this, um, uh, what to you looked like a road under construction. Well, it looked like where we had landed was a road under construction. Yeah. And the Jeep was back up, oh, maybe about 20 or 30 feet from the door when they got out. All right. And then they walked on up and got in. Jeep turned around and took off. So there was another person who was driving the Jeep. Driving the Jeep, right. Who subsequently left. Yes, right. left. Did you recognize either of these individuals that got on the plane at this point? No, I did not know either one of them. All right. Uh, did you later uh, see uh, some recognition of one of these uh, persons that boarded the plane? Yes, I uh, didn't recognize the larger one, but I did uh, after seeing his picture on television an awful lot, uh, a person that looked like him, and he looked, this person that got on the airplane looked an awful lot like uh, Oswald. All right. And, but this uh, came later after you saw Oswald's uh, uh, picture on the media. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So then uh, the plane turned around and took off? Well, we turned around and took off. And we're headed west. Did anybody ever say anything to you uh, up to this point? On no, this they did not speak to me. They went on up behind the cockpit and sat out, and uh, they, no one spoke to me, not even a pilot or it might have been a navigator, I don't know. But Now, where did the C-54 go? We went to, I later found out, a place called Roswell Air Force Base in New Mexico. All right. And, and we did not... I'm sorry, go ahead. When we landed there, it was about dusk. All four of them came back to the back, opened the door, got out, and took off. Never said a word to me. And then I got off and went over to a, a building that had a, it had a light in it. That's why I say it was dusk. It had a light in it, and uh, you could still see the outline of the building and all. But I went in there, and there was an MP in there. I, I first asked him, where am I at? He says, you're at Roswell Air Force Base in New Mexico. And uh, I said, well, I, I guess this is as far as my ride's going. I'll have to go downtown and catch a bus home. How do you get there? He said, oh, you can't go anywhere. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, this base has been, was placed under alert, uh, full alert, and said nobody can leave or enter. And I said, well, we just landed. <laughs> I waited until 9 o'clock before he let me go. Then he told me where to go catch the bus downtown and, and catch the Greyhound to uh, Colorado Springs. And no one else uh, talked to you after the plane landed there at Roswell Air Force Base? No, I didn't talk to anyone else. Okay. All right. Now, the last thing we're going to be talking about here today is uh, the allegations of Cecil Small. Now... Cecil Small uh, was uh, traveling with his wife from North Carolina. Uh, they, had, I think, they had been on a trip to California, and let's see here that they ran into some trouble in in Dallas, Texas, with their truck. 
Um, let me find this here. Yeah, the Smalls were on their way back to North Carolina from California when they became stranded in Dallas due to mechanical problems with their old truck. Since they were very low on money at the time, it was decided that Mrs. Small would find uh, some temporary work in Dallas while Mr. Small attempted to repair the truck sufficiently so they could continue their trip home uh, to North Carolina, hopefully in time for Christmas in 63. They arrived in Dallas a few weeks prior to the assassination. They were allowed to park their truck, which had sleeping facilities in the back on the property of a local mechanic. Now, on November 22, 1963, Cecil says he set out in his truck for Western Auto on Main Street in downtown Dallas, hopeful of obtaining both the thermostat and bearings for his 1948 Ford. Turning onto Commerce Street from the Simmons Freeway and going under the triple overpass in Daly Plaza as Kennedy's motorcade approached, he had a little dog in the back which began barking as he drove past President Kennedy's car in heavy traffic. Now, this can be seen in the Zapruder film, which does appear to show a truck go by. Small rec recalled during his 1977 interview uh, seeing Mrs. Kennedy stand up, although he was not aware of shots having been fired, which he later believed was the reason that his dog was barking, as he always did when he heard gunfire. Now, shortly thereafter, traveling through Dealey Plaza, Small arrived at the auto shop where he learned from television broadcasts in the store the first sketchy details of the assassination. Although he was able to obtain a thermostat, he was directed to another store in Oak Cliff which stocked the bearings that he needed. The address was written on a piece of paper which he put in his glove compartment. Now he retraced his route down Main Street, noticing the traffic was backed up as he reached the corner of Main and Houston, which slowed him down somewhat. He was also uncertain if he was going the right direction to reach Oak Cliff, uh, so he headed down Main Street towards the Triple Overpass. Small pulled over to ask directions from a young man carrying some books who was walking down Main Street. The pedestrian assured Small that he was going the right way, and at the same time he asked for a ride, introducing himself as Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> as they proceeded towards Oak Cliff shortly before 1 p.m., Small mentioned the assassination attempt to Oswald, and recalled in his 1977 interview that Oswald did not seem to be aware of what had happened. He indicated having been briefly questioned by a red-headed policeman in the Texas School Book Depository where he worked, but he was allowed to leave. Since Small was unfamiliar with Dallas, he asked Oswald to assist him in locating the auto shop, directing him to the slip of paper in the glove compartment. Inside was also a 38 long-barreled revolver, which Oswald commented on, uh, learning from Small that he would prefer a shorter barrel. Oswald mentioned the fact that he owned such a weapon and would be interesting in the possibility of making a trade. After directing Small to the auto shop, they agreed to meet in 30 minutes, and Oswald got out on 10th Street, not far from the rooming house where he was living. Small did not indicate where they were to meet, but presumably arranged to do so where he dropped Oswald off, or possibly at the Western Auto Store. Of course, it was in the area where J.D. Tippett of the Dallas Police was brutally shot to death, allegedly by Lee Harvey Oswald who was seen fleeing from the scene around 1.15 with gun in hand. Now, according to Small, after not meeting Oswald where they had planned to and apparently not aware of the Tippett slaying, he drove back towards downtown Dallas, but decided to pull into Parkland Hospital. As he walked from his car towards the hospital, he saw a heavy-set Hispanic man and two female compa companions, who he claimed had walked across Commerce Street in front of him when he was originally driving through Dealey Plaza, getting into a station wagon. The man had been carrying what appeared to be a rifle with a scope partially covered by paper. Upon leaving Parkland, Small continued out to the mechanic's shop and to his astonishment learned that Lee Harvey Oswald was now under arrest for the slaying of a policeman and possible involvement in the assassination of President Kennedy. Now, according to Mrs. Small's account, she showed her husband a photo of Oswald in the paper, which he immediately recognized, but she was adamant that the young man was too calm to have committed such a horrendous act. Uh, it should be pointed out here that there was no photo of Oswald published until the following morning, but of course he was shown on live television numerous times. Unlike many other witnesses with information related to the assassination, Small did not notify the authorities in Dallas about his experience, which conflicted with information published that weekend as to the means by which Oswald traveled to Oak Cliff. 
There was also conflicting information provided by Assistant Sheriff uh, Roger Cray, who claimed to have seen Oswald run out of the Texas School Book Depository and get into a light-colored Nash Rambler. Uh, two other witnesses, Marvin Robinson and Richard Carr, also saw Craig's man get into a Rambler station wagon with a luggage rack on top. Although Robinson could not describe the man, while Carr stated it was a man with horn-rimmed glasses on, whom he had seen on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. In early December, the Smalls were able to complete their trip back to Charlotte, North Carolina, and later moved to Boone. Small did describe his experience to other members of the family, and sometime in the late 60s, two FBI agents interviewed Small, suggesting that he should get a job and stop worrying about the matter. Uh, he was in his late 40s at the time of the assassination and had worked as a security guard in several states as well as in Boone to supplement a disability pension he was receiving. He also at some point began working as a private investigator and was involved in a murder case in 1972 involving the deaths of Bryce and Virginia Durham and their son Bobby Joe, whose bodies were discovered by Small himself and the Durham son-in-law, Troy Hall. The murders were never solved. At the age of 63 in 78, Cecil Lee Small filed as a Democratic candidate for sheriff of Watauga County against Bill Farthing, a Republican, but presumably lost. Obviously, Cecil Small's allegations have to be treated with suspicion, especially since he failed to report his account to the authorities at the time. However, it's hard to believe that a man that would make up such a story and yet not attempt to benefit financially from it over the years. It is also plausible that Small feared for his life as reports quickly came in indicating that Oswald had taken a taxi driven by William Whaley, the most senior taxi driver in his company, and a Teamsters Union member had, who died on duty several years later in a car accident. <clears throat> he might have felt it was safer to simply keep the information to himself until he got back to the security of his home in North Carolina. Now, the most significant aspect of Small's accounts is the discussion he allegedly had with Oswald related to possibly exchanging guns. If this really occurred, it would provide an innocent explanation for why Oswald had his thirty-eight revolver on him at the time of his arrest. It is possible that Oswald was on his way to rendezvous with Small when he was questioned by Tippett, who might have noticed a gun causing Oswald to panic. It is also possible that Oswald and Small had already met and were in the process of making a trade when Tippett showed up, especially if Small happened to be short heavy set with black curly hair. Such a description was given by several witnesses to the Tippett murder. And Akila Clemens, who was ignored by the Warren Commission, who told Mark Lane that this man had shot Tippett, gesturing to a man fitting Oswald's description uh, to leave the scene. In fact, Cecil Small shot Tippett, if in fact she, Cecil Small shot Tippett with his long-barreled thirty-eight. That would explain why he did not contact the Dallas police about having picked up Oswald. Since there is no written record of Oswald's interrogation, we have no idea whether Oswald himself indicated how he got to Oak Cliff on November 22nd. In fact, there is no clarification made that I can find as to how Oswald traveled to and from Oak Cliff prior to 19, November 22nd, each day to and from work. But given his limited income, it's unlikely he took a taxi and instead relied on the bus, or possibly a ride from someone. Hint, hint. Uh, of course, if he could get a free ride, he'd probably jump at the opportunity to save some money and at the time uh, enjoy someone else's company. Now, given Roger Craig's testimony, it's possible that Oswald hopped into the Rambler only long enough to receive further instructions and then got on a bus, but in frustration got off and headed down Commerce Street where Small asked him for directions. So, let's see here. Having listened to the interview with, with Cecil Small sent to me by Betty Donahue's niece, I have no reason to disbelieve the man. Uh, despite evidence to the contrary developed by the Dallas police, except for his reluctance to come forward until years later. It certainly would be helpful to learn more about his background beyond the few sketchy pieces of information I have been able to obtain, especially his political views and whether or not he would ever belong to any right-wing organizations such as the Minutemen, John Birch Society, or the KKK. It is conceivable that Small has fabricated a hoax, is telling the truth, or has created a cover story for possibly uh, killing J.D. Tippett. So, now this, this little article was written by Peter Whitney, who, who was a researcher back in the uh, late 80s and 90s. Now, some notes about this. Um, I'll read you these real quick. Several years ago, I made contact with a woman in New Orleans named Llewellyn, uh, who I hope might be related to David Ferry's former roommate, who was interviewed by Garrison staff. She wasn't, but after speaking to her as well as writing, 
I discovered shortly thereafter that her phone number is no longer in service. It could be she decided to mail me this article. I have also been in contact for over two years with Perry Russo, who answered a series of questions on audio tape with the help of a girlfriend who read the questions. Possibly she sent the article. Note, my three-part interview with Russo is available from Ulrich Shannon in Hall, Quebec, who has a large audio collection for a reasonable charge. I wrote to Charlie Peake, but did not see a reply and learned that the WS paper that he no longer was working for them his phone number in Purelier, North Carolina, given to me by both the paper and the operator was no longer in service. Betty and Chuck Donahue sent me a copy of this 1977 Cecil Small interview, but a portion of it has been edited out involving the discussion of a gun described in this article. They assured me it was merely an accident made by someone else who had copied it for me. I'm not so sure it was an accident. They also sent me a, a copy of the Bill Cooper presentation of this Pruder film that Robert Groden commented on at the Chicago conference. As I pointed out in the letter to the Donahues, Groden makes it abundantly clear in his slide presentation that, that Bill Greer is not holding a pistol in his hand and firing at the president. It's merely a reflection of light from Kellerman's forehead. This washed-out print used by Cooper gives the impression it might be a gun. I learned from a, a right-wing nut here in Abbotsford that a writer who, and preacher named Lindsay Williams, who lives in northern Oregon, was also giving a similar presentation. So, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. But, you know, that's uh, that's a pretty crazy story. You know, I mean, can we trust it? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Like I said, there's a lot of questions about this guy, which I think Peter Whitney uh, asked very, very well. Um, so can we trust him? That's, that's the question. You know, does this story hold up? Could it be true? I mean, uh, you know, like his and so many others of these fantastical, interesting stories around the assassination that have us all enthralled, uh, who can be trusted and who cannot, you know, it's up, it's up for you to make up your own mind, read their story, research it and, uh, check it out for yourself before you buy into it. Uh, something that I was always highly recommend that you do do, do do, um, that's it for this week. Um, once again, I'm going to post up all the stuff we talked about here over on TLGpodcast.com, uh, where you can go check it out. Also, while you're there, if you'd like to help a brother out, hit the donate button and uh, buy me a cup of coffee. I would greatly appreciate it. Every penny I get goes right back into this show. Um, also, check out my buddy Doug Campbell over to Dallas Action, doing great work over there. Uh, with the assistance of Ted Rubenstein, and uh, he's got some great interviews up with, with Jeffrey Caulfield and Joe Mellon coming soon, if not already. So please check him out and show him some love. Also, my buddy Carmine over at Neopolis Media Group, uh, holding it down over there. Chuck O'Celli on American Freedom Radio, doing great work. My buddy Will over at JFK Primary Sources, uh, holding it down and uh doing it for you. I think he's revamping his site to make it bigger and better and easier to navigate. So, uh, we'll check, we'll check in with him soon and get an update and, uh, see how things are going over on JFK primary sources. That's it for me this week. People beaming the sun bitch up this satellite down directly to your ears. This is your boy on the Lungama podcast. Peace.
aggravated, stupid shit, man, I hate it. Bitches lying, bitches crying, suicidal, getting lined. Getting mine, bouncing freaks, losing sleep, counting sheep. Absolute cash and loot, man in black, packing heat. Born and blazing, rotten, raising fingers up. Time to wave them, show these players playing that they better get their ass to praying. They won't be nothing but dice after the cutting. I'm cutting them like a fish, they gonna wish they never push my button. The door is shutting and a knock will do you no good. You getting nothing while I rock here in Hollywood. I'll tell you something else, you can take it to the bank. I don't give a fuck what none of y'all people think. Holding the gold, it's a gold, it's a golden, y'all. Golden Cobra. Holding the gold, it's a gold, it's a golden, y'all. Golden Cobra. Holding the gold, it's a gold, it's a golden, y'all. Golden Cobra. Holding the gold, it's a gold, it's a golden, y'all. Flush you turds down the drain, down the hatch Throwing craps, throwing matches on the gas Check the match, check the wheels, check the ride, pay the bills Burning miles, want a smile if you're feeling versatile Versus wild, flipping bitches, grinding trucks, skating ditches Hating hard, but hardly hating Knife and slice your shit like bacon Sick and tired, you is fired, I'm the truth and you's a liar The door is shutting and a knock will do you no good You getting nothing while I rock here in Hollywood I'll tell you something else, you can take it to the bank I don't give a fuck what none of y'all people think right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft Tells. Welcome to the House of Roll.